Acts 14, we will finish today with God's help. We began last week as we, or we concluded last week as we have been considering churches planted at Iconium and Lystra, and today we'll uh, have a short time in Derby, and then join Paul and Barnabas on their return uh, trip to Antioch. So let's read uh, Acts 14. We'll pick it up at verse 8 to keep the context. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, excuse me, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. Verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples." 
Well, our title today is God's Work Accomplished, and that's part two. God's work accomplished, as we note in, at the end of verse 26, when they gave that great report of what the work that they had accomplished. So God's work accomplished. They set out to plant churches in Iconium and Lystra and, and these other cities, and that's what God enabled them to do. So we'll look at verses 21 through 28, and we concluded last week where Paul had been stoned. Paul had been stoned, and yet God kept him alive, and he rose up and traveled down to Derby, which again was about um, 93 miles away. So he was just stoned, and he's traveling on that Roman road, uh, the Via Sebaste, down to Derby, surely preaching as he went. He didn't give up, even though he was stoned, even though he was struck down, almost dead. They thought he was dead. He got up along with Barnabas and traveled all the way, 93 miles. I mean, think about all these travels they're doing. We may not like a a one or two hour car ride. Imagine riding on a donkey, a horse, or walking. And uh, it, it was difficult and there were dangers on the road to be robbed. And it was hard. Um, you were maybe carrying a little bit of food. How much good water did you have to drink? Put yourself in their shoes. It wasn't easy. And we'll hear more about that in, in the passage today. But they had faith and they pressed forward by the grace of God. And I think that faith and perseverance, these two traits are exhibited and we can learn a lot from them. And at the conclusion, he exhorted the churches in this and, and we'll exhort ourselves. Well, verse 21 begins with, after they had preached the gospel to that city. And that city is what? What city? Derby. Derby. I know, it's confusing. That's why I keep checking myself. What city am I at now? Because they're going back and forth, and sometimes there's one verse, but they were there for a long time. But it's actually... They preached the gospel, they evangelized, they brought the good news to that city of Derby. They not only preached, but God granted success, and it says, they had made many disciples. And then, they returned to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch, strengthening the souls of the, of the disciples, excuse me, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They persevered in preaching. And remember, Acts is a history of preaching. And if we want to see revivals, we need a return to biblical preaching. That's why the majority even of our worship service is preaching, the preaching of the Word of God. And they were preaching particularly the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that calling sinners to turn from their sins to repent and believe, they were proclaiming this gospel uh, to Derby. Then they went uh, back to the other cities, and in those, as they went, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. And do you remember, possibly, there, there's two people in particular that uh, one, for sure, was from Derby, and one is a maybe. Do you remember who those people were? Notable characters in the book of Acts? 
Timothy, yes. It's a little bit unclear. Uh, maybe he was from Derby or Lister. Maybe he was one of those new disciples. But again, listen to Acts 16.1. Paul came to Derby and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So it seems he was definitely there. They knew him. Was he converted maybe in one of these preaching visits? Uh, It seems that he was. Also, Acts 20 verse 4 tells us that Gaius was also of Derby. So he was one of Paul's traveling companions, Acts 19.29. So potentially in these visits to Derby, to Lystra, uh, Gaius was converted and became a traveling partner of of the Apostle Paul. And Timothy, uh, the, the great pastor and preacher, and protege, if you will, a son to Paul, uh, was maybe from Derby or Lystra. So God is extending his kingdom in the hearts of people in, in these towns, uh, Derby, then Lystra. And uh, by the way, as a reminder, again, ha- have a glimpse at your, at your map, uh, maybe the last map in your Bible, and you can see, remember, Derby, um, if you look in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see Antioch. And uh, a little bit west of Antioch, you see Tarsus, where Paul was from. And then a little bit further, you'll see Derby. So they had almost went back to Antioch, but we're going to see them go the other direction. It was close to home, but they wanted to go back and strengthen the churches, which is interesting. They didn't take the easy way. They were really so close to Antioch, they could have just went back and said, we're good. We, we, we preach the gospel, we establish and planted churches, but they, they head back to Derby, and then it says they went to Lystra further west, and you can see that on your map, and then even further west and north uh, is Iconium, and then you go a little bit further northwest, and you'll see Pisidian Antioch. So they went back to all of these cities, uh, 200 plus miles traveling for two to four weeks. A lot of travel is involved. And as they went, they're preaching the gospel. They're strengthening the disciples. They're encouraging them to persevere in the faith, to continue in the faith. Uh, The word actually could be to remain faithful in the faith. It's, It's almost doubly emphatic to live in or to stay in the faith, to keep going by faith. And actually, when we become a Christian, or when we're not even a Christian, we may hear the message to strive to enter the narrow gate. You know, the way is broad that leads to destruction, but the gate to eternal life is narrow. We're we're called to agonize, to push in, to press into the kingdom. Well, do we stop pressing just to get in the door? No. (laughs) It's a lifelong process where we have to continue to push, to strive by the grace of God. But we must keep... Uh, persevering and striving and being faithful to the faith, the faith in God, the faith in Christ. We must keep running. Why? Because and through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We don't get to heaven in the, in that sense of the kingdom by resting on our laurels. I think Isaac Watts said, you know, many struggled and are martyred, shall we float to heaven on flowery beds of ease? No. 
It's a, it's a battle. Uh, different types of battles, different types of tribulations. Paul has a long list of tribulations in Corinthians that he goes through. Remember, once I was stoned, uh, he was he was abused. But he also talks about the daily pressures that he had from from bearing the burdens of the churches. He says pressures from within, pressures from without. So there are many difficulties and trials in the life of faith, even in the life of a church. But we must be encouraged to keep going, to persevere, knowing that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. The Holmans translates it this way. It is necessary to pass through many troubles. There are many troubles in this life. So lesson one, despite many trials and tribulations, we must press on by faith into the kingdom of God. Despite many trials and we could say many tribulations, we must press on by faith into the kingdom of God. There's a long list of trials and tribulations. We each have our own. Sometimes they're health issues. Sometimes it's a lack of sleep. Sometimes it's your job. Sometimes it's family pressures. Sometimes it's church pressures. But we must keep pressing and remain faithful to the faith, to live in and walk by faith. And it's a great segue for Hebrews 11. And Tom has pointed out, by faith, by faith, by faith. We live and we die by faith, persevering through the trials and tribulations, remaining faithful to the faith. Our faith is not in faith, but our faith is in God. That's how we press forward through trials and tribulations. And Paul was stoned. That's the immediate tribulation he just had, let alone traveling hundreds of miles, exhausted, worn out. But he caused the church and even himself to press on by faith. And Hebrews 12, as we'll come to, Jesus endured the cross. And the author of Hebrews says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There are many trials and tribulations in the Christian life, but Jesus had the greatest tribulation where he bore the cross. And we run the race with endurance looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Well, despite all the tribulations and trials they were having, Paul and Barnabas and the other believers, verse 23, verse 23 says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, and it's in the plural, fastings, they commanded them, excuse me, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So despite being stoned, exhausted, traveling hundreds of miles, they had been so close to home, they could have went back. No, they kept going to appoint elders in every church. They did this through praying about it, seeking God's wisdom. They did it with fasting, humbling themselves to to know what is God's wisdom and direction uh, in every church. The churches are which ones? Lystra, Iconium, 
And and I said maybe Derby because it listed the other three. I think Derby would be included here, but they just mentioned that they were uh, returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And they appointed elders. Now, the way the apostles did things, we don't have apostles today, so it was a bit different. And the church was relatively in its infancy. Uh, The church at Jerusalem had been established after the great revival at Pentecost. But now, churches were being established. Antioch uh, was a church that sent out Paul and Barnabas. But now other churches are being established And they needed officers, and they say, it says that they appointed elders, presbyteros. So, did you know that we're Presbyterians? We we believe in the presbyteros, the elders serving and leading the church. It's a church office used in the book of Acts 16 times. Acts is a record of the establishment of the church, and in the establishment of the church was in the establishment of the eldership, or we may say the presbytery. And, um, excuse me, 16 times in the New Testament, 10 in Acts. And normally, would you guess, is the word elder in singular or plural? Plural, yes. The normal... Uh, context of the local church is that it's elders in the plural. It's, it's abnormal to have a church with just one elder. That, that shouldn't be the norm. I'm not saying that it's sinful, but the goal should be in, in a, in a New Testament church to have a plurality of elders. And that's, that's significant. If you went to a large church for years and years and there was only one elder, something's wrong. You know, and so, with offices, and, and we lack, even now, we're not studying it, we have no deacons. Or deaconess. So, uh, in that area, we, we need to pray and seek God to be aligned to the Word. But, anyhow, talking about these elders, uh, I was reminded of John's study a few years ago, where he explained this, that uh, elder is actually the normal word in the New Testament for the leaders of the church. And, and he pointed this out, and I really I found it insightful, that do you know how many times the word pastor is used in the New Testament? Pardon? At least once, but it's actually twice. And once as a noun and once as a verb. And again, I think we should, as much as we can align our vocabulary and our thoughts according to Scripture. And Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as pastors, the noun. And then 1 Peter 5.2, where he's charging the elders to shepherd or pastor the flock. Anyhow, in American Christianity, and I think even around the world, we have often created... We've split the office of, of elder and we created pastors and elders. But really, in the scripture, there's only a one leading office and that is normally called the elder or pastors or bishops. A third, We have a third Greek word. Uh, it's translated overseer. Um, it's only used a couple times, but 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for an overseer or elder. But it's interesting that for some reason... 
in, in many churches that there, there's somehow deacons, elders, and the pastor. And, and really, that's just not true. Uh, and I wanted to recommend to you, I read three things, or two things this week in preparation. One is our church constitution. It's actually an excellent document. Uh, it's on our website. Check it out. And it actually goes through the three Greek words that are used, and it explains very clearly that there's two offices in the church, elders and deacons. And I encourage you to look at that. And then our confession of faith. Uh, it's an excellent resource, Spurgeon said. It helps new believers and all of us to have a mini systematic theology, a, a small body of divinity to study the Bible. And there's great paragraphs in there about what is the church and what does it look like. Anyhow, those documents help to <clears throat> flesh out <clears throat> these simple phrases. They appointed elders. Well, well, who are they? What are they? And how does this work? Um, we have some good documents and of course, Acts is descriptive, and so we don't have apostles to appoint elders, so we have it in a different way, but just some good review, I think, to remind us of why do we even have elders in the church? It's a biblical truth, and it's a requirement of local churches to have. So may that encourage you, and again, pray for us, as always. Well, how did they set these elders apart? It says, having prayed with fastings, they commended them. Now, I've been chewing, and, and if I knew Greek better, maybe I could find the antecedent to them. Is it the elders that were commended, or is it the churches, or both? Well, I'm going to take it as both, and if I'm mistaken, I know it's true either way that the elders and the church should be commended to the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And this word, to entrust, or that is commend, we, they were the apostle paul was was commending or entrusting these new elders and or the churches to the lord jesus he was entrusting them the word means to make a deposit in a bank paul was taking these churches and depositing them in the hands of christ that is profound Talk about a safety deposit box. Talk about a safe with those massive doors and locks. Paul was depositing the church into the hands of Christ to the Lord in whom they had believed. Lesson two, simply, let us entrust the church of Christ to Christ the head. Let us entrust the church of Christ to Christ the head. I thought of saying it in a different way. Let us entrust the church of Christ to the Christ of the church. We cannot separate the, the body from the head. And we will stand firm that Christ is the head of the church universal, the, the bride, but also he's the head of Pilgrim Bible Church. And we commit and entrust Pilgrim Bible Church, not to the elders. In one sense, the elders are working with God and all of us together are the, the people doing the work of the ministry. But in the, in the truest sense, in the ultimate sense, in the regular sense, we entrust the, the church, Pilgrim Bible Church, into the hands of Christ. Christ is the defender of the church, not the Queen of England. 
we would part ways with Anglican brothers and sisters over that. You remember in Revelation 2 and 3, it says that Jesus walks among the lampstands. The surveillance, the activity that Christ is walking among us and is present. That's sobering and comforting. The Lord Jesus is present with us. So we entrust ourselves, as Paul did with these new elders and new churches, unto the Lord in whom they had believed. A.T. Robertson said, the elders and the churches had trusted in Christ, now Paul entrusts them back to Christ. They had believed in Christ, now he hands them back to Christ. And, And let's think broadly and generally here. Now Paul... He was a church planter. We, we titled this section uh, Church Planting at Iconium and at Lystra and these other, we could add Derby, uh, uh, Antioch, and so forth. He was a church planter. He was a church leader. He was a church preacher. He was a church lover. He was the apostle to the church, particularly the Gentile church. He was the champion of the church of Christ. Just go through your concordance. I hope you have a big, fat, exhaustive concordance. Sometimes it's nice to have books. I like books. Get out your exhaustive concordance or go on Bible Gateway. You know, you all have access to the internet. And, and, and just look up the word church or any words related to the church, elders. And, and think about the epistles. The epistles in the New Testament are letters to who? Churches. Paul was a man of the church. He was committed to the church. And let us imitate him. He loved Christ and therefore he loved the bride of Christ. Listen to the hymn number 352 by Timothy Dwight. I love your church, O Lord. Her saints before you stand, dear as the apple of your eye engraven on your hand. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. I love your church, O God, the people you have called. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with His own precious blood. Can you say that? Do we love the Bride of Christ? And do we love Pilgrim Bible Church? If you're here, I think by the grace of God, we all say yes. I love your church universal, the Bride, and I love Pilgrim Bible Church. Can we excel still the more? Yes. Paul was stoned bringing the gospel of Christ to people and establishing churches. Sometimes it may be hard to get out of bed to be here, to join the ladies' meeting that had a blessed time yesterday, praise God, to join the men's meeting, to join prayer group, to get together with the saints of Pilgrim Bible Church. Acts is a history of the church 
and the message and and the church is continuing, the gates of hell will not prevail. Until Christ returns, there will be churches. Let's challenge ourselves to think biblically, to act biblically, and to have hearts like the apostle. We're not apostles, but Paul said, imitate me as much as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of me, and I think this would be a good application. Well, back to their mission, verse 24. They continued, verse 24, they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. They traveled another 175 miles. Several weeks they're traveling, preaching as they go in these regions. Again, you can see them on your map, Pisidia and Pamphylia. They're regions in southern Galatia. North Galatia goes all the way up to, on your map, Bithynia and Pontus, and and further east to where the Bible shows, uh, the map can show Galatia, but this whole region was north and south Galatia. And even the uh, secular records show that in these very towns, in these regions, there were governors set up of southern Galatia, which will be significant for Acts 15 and the book of Galatians. So when you think about the epistle to the Galatians, think about these areas. And there's some debate, and we'll, we'll hit that as we get forward. But this is the region of southern Galatia, Pisidia and Pamphylia. Verse 25. What were they doing when they had spoken the word in Perga? They went down to Italia. What does that mean, spoken the word? Preach the gospel. The gospel of Christ. They were preaching the word. We don't have record of all those sermons and evangelistic opportunities. They were gospelizing. And here, it's, it's Perga, which is a river port and the capital of Pamphylia. You can see it on your map. Perga. Perga was a massive city. If we maybe mentioned it before, it had one of those theaters seating 14,000 people. These were massive cities. They also had a temple for Artemis. What was the other major city that had a temple for Artemis? Ephesus. Remember, great is Artemis, the, the goddess of Ephesus. Well, they also had a temple in Perga for her. She was, by the way, the daughter of Zeus. And we just talked, they thought, remember they thought Paul was uh, uh, Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus. Well, Artemis was the supposed daughter of Zeus, the twin of Apollo. She was the goddess of fertility and hunting. Again, see the blindness of these people. As we all were, children of the devil, blind, worshiping the gods and goddesses, make-believe. But they had this huge temple for her there. Paul's preaching, maybe right outside the temple, maybe outside that theater, seating 14,000 people. Massive city. Uh, the ancient inscriptions tell us that in, in Perga, uh, there was, there were physicians and philosophers and philologists. You know what those are? People that study language and literature. There were athletes, 
actors maybe performing at that grand theater, poets, singers, mimes, musicians, and dancers. This was a massive city. Some of us might, might enjoy going to Seattle for a concert, but often, what, what do you find in cities? Some of you, I think, don't care for cities. I'm not a big fan myself. Cities can be very perverse, can have a lot of high crime rates, can have a lot of idolatry. You might think, I just want to get out in the back 40 and enjoy uh, no stress and less crime. It's not wrong to live in, in safer places. But when they wanted to make inroads with the gospel, they went to where the people were. And it was... I think we can romanticize these cities. They went to Perga and had this stadium. I'm sure he was disgusted with the idolatry. He was vexed. And we'll hear about his reactions as he goes through other cities. But I, I share these stories to think about the context of where he was preaching the gospel. It was in this idolatrous, perverted city of Perga. But this uh, city of Perga, it's, it's on the river a few miles from the coast, and about nine miles down that river, you come to the port of Atalia. Has anyone been to Turkey? I admire, I, I want to go. And do you know what the modern name of Atalia is? It sounds similar, it's Antalya. It's actually the fifth largest city in Turkey. And it still uh, has, a, has a big harbor, it's beautiful. You can look up some pictures so this city still exists today, and Paul went down there. And again, we don't have a record. Was he continuing to preach in, in Italia as well? Uh, but he was going there for a purpose, to get to the port. And from that port, he, verse 26, he's going to look for a ship to head back to where? Verse 26. Where are they going? From there they sailed to Antioch, yes. Is that Pisidian or Syrian Antioch? Syrian, exactly. I keep quizzing myself because it's easy to get mixed up. But they're heading back to the eastern Antioch or Syrian Antioch. They sailed to, from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So they traveled about 300 miles by sea. I mean, did they hit storms? You know, we, we don't know. But 300 miles, it's a long trip back to where their mission began. Back to where they started out by the grace of God. And now their work was completed. It was accomplished. It was fulfilled. So it's a beautiful word there. For the work that they had accomplished, lesson three, by the grace of God, we accomplish his work. It's nothing, it's not a secret or some clever lesson. By the grace of God, we accomplish his work. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own willpower that we do it. It's by the grace of God. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet, not I, 
but the grace of God with me. It's by God's grace that we can do anything, that we can labor and continue on and go on mission and serve the church. It's by the grace of God we accomplish His work. They began by the grace of God, they continued by the grace of God, and they returned by the grace of God. And we are dependent just as much. If the apostle, the great apostle, had to depend on the grace of God and was sent out by the grace of God, how much more do we need the grace of God? Today, this week, next week, next month, we accomplish the work of God by the grace of God. When they had arrived, verse 27, and gathered the church together, the church at where? Antioch, yes. When they gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They finally made it back to their sending church. They had been gone for one to two years. It was a long, arduous trip They had been stoned and chased out of cities and persecuted, but they're coming back, uh, maybe with other new disciples. We don't have a record, but it's at least Paul and Barnabas coming back one to two years later. They gather up the church, and everybody's excited to hear the report from God's fellow workers. They want to know what happened, and Paul and Barnabas want to tell them, and it says they want to report all that God had done with them. Lesson four. The best reports missionaries can share with their supporting churches is what God has done. The best reports missionaries can share with their supporting churches is what God has done. When we hear from a missionary or our missionary, we want to know what has God done. Yes, the missionaries labor and work hard, but it's by the grace of God. It's what God has done. It's God-centered. The church and missions and preaching and all of it must be God-centered. It's what God has done. We accomplish something by the grace of God, for the glory of God. And what was accomplished? Paul notes it, and we can't breeze over it. God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I reviewed back from Acts 2 this morning and reflecting on from Pentecost when all those people that came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, all those Jewish proselytes had come back for Pentecost and they all heard in their own language and even there there was some hints that the gospel was going to spread and all these languages were spoken, the gift of tongues, and the gospel went forth and then we start to see some Gentiles converted, and then we see the Apostle Peter, and God tells him what God has cleansed, let no man consider unholy. The gospel and the covenant was moving from a Jewish covenant to a global covenant, including the Gentiles. It was a covenantal shift that nobody could have imagined. The old covenant had been in force for 2,000 plus years. I don't think we get it, why these Jews were so, they had angst 
for many reasons, but it was a great shift. Even the apostles read in Galatians that even Peter and even Barnabas was carried away with the air of the Judaizers. It was such a shift that I don't, I, we can't get our heads around how significant it was that all of a sudden the people of God were becoming primarily Gentiles. Not that Jews were excluded from salvation, but as Paul said, it, it's, it's not the gospel for the Jews or for the Gentiles. It's all who believe in Christ are brothers and sisters. There was a door opened of faith for the Gentiles. One author said that Acts is the pivot book of the New Testament. We're going from a, a primarily Jewish religion to a religion that is for all people, all the world, all the nations, all the Gentiles. And it was a shock. And Paul was the man who himself, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, he must have been shocked himself to see all these Gentiles being saved. There had been Gentiles saved, and we even have in the lineage of Jesus the, 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 the Gentile women in the lineage of Christ. There had been Gentiles saved, but nothing like happened when the Spirit came from Pentecost on and established the New Testament church at Jerusalem, at Antioch, at Derby, at Iconium. These people were floored all that God was doing. A door of faith was opened to the Gentiles. The influx of Gentiles into the kingdom was shocking the Jewish world. And Acts 15, this is the prelude to Acts 15 when some problems were going to happen. When some Jews were coming down, maybe even truly saved Jews who, well, should they be circumcised and should they abstain from food sacrificed to idols and how is this going to work? How are we going to have Gentiles and Jews worshiping the true God together. It was complicated. This covenantal shift, this pivot era that was really not just in uh, one day, one month. This was over years the church was being established and being developed. It was incredible. And again, put yourself back in that time. It, it took them years to understand this. Even the apostles struggled with it. It's profound. So this report of what God had done, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They were believing the gospel of Christ and being saved. Well, Paul and Barnabas reported that, and then, verse 28, they spent a long time with the disciples. At what city? Antioch. They're at Antioch. They spent a long time. That's the church that sent them out. And remember, they were first called Christians at Antioch. It was a multi-ethnic church that sent them out on this mission. And now they were back. They had spent a year there. It said in uh, 1126, they spent one whole year before going at Antioch, building up the church. Um, but now they're back spending time surely preaching and teaching and telling the stories of all that happened, equipping the saints at Antioch even more to do the work of the ministry. It was a time of rest. It was a time of ministry. They were they spent uh, literally not a little time. We don't usually speak that way, but I, maybe the King James translates it that way, not a little time, a long time, as we say, with the disciples at Antioch. Well, thus the story of church planting and 
God's mission accomplished. The work of God accomplished. Praise Him. Just in review, and then if you have any questions. Lesson one, despite many trials and tribulations, we must press on by faith into the kingdom of God. Despite all the trials we have, we must press forward by faith into the kingdom. Lesson two, let us entrust the church to Christ, the church of Christ to Christ the head. Let us entrust the church of Christ to Christ the head. The church universal and the church local, right here. We commend ourselves to you, O Christ. Lesson three, by the grace of God, we accomplish his work. Do we work? Yes. Do we labor, sweat, have tears and and effort? Yes. But it's by the grace of God. By God's grace. Fourth, the best missionary, the best reports missionaries can share with their supporting churches is what God has done. Amen. May, May God... Uh, bring our missionaries back and we'll hear another report as we have in the past and we pray for them to hear what is God doing. And um, we praise him that he has his kingdom, he has his churches and even uh, us here. And we have just a few moments. What are your comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Presbyteros. I'll give it to you afterwards. How about that? It's just, I I say the word to illustrate, that's where we get the word Presbyterian, and we can know that one Greek word for uh, elders, and again, it's the normal word. Yes, brother? So, you were saying earlier, uh, Elders are pastors. Yes. Yes, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a couple of things there. One, there's no biblical even example or requirement to address the elders with a title. Um, I think cultures and churches can go too far one way and too far the other way. So there's no requirement to say Elder Brett, Elder Tom, Elder John, or pastor, or bishop, or overseer. We're not commanded, or or, reverend, yeah. Um, There's no command for this, and I think it's not wrong necessarily, but I think you can maybe think of examples where the pastor becomes something that is is inhuman, that he is so exalted that whatever he says is the word of God. And that is, is very wrong. On the other hand, if the pastors and elders are unappreciated, Paul said in First Thessalonians, to appreciate those who labor among you. And so, if the elders are worshipped, that's sin. But if they're unappreciated, that's wrong too. So, 
There's no requirement to, to address us uh, by some formality, formal name, uh, but there is a requirement to respect the elders, and, and even we elders have to respect one another. But, of course, all the saints have to show respect and, and honor. I, I use the phrase, we're Presbyterian, loosely, just meaning that we have presbyters, we have elders, um, because and even the word uh, episkopos, uh, episcopalian, takes that word, the word for overseer, so it's helpful to understand the background of why do we do this today and why are there some differences among denominations. But my main thought is to say elder is the primary word. I think in American culture and even around the world, we, we've used pastor and elders are like, yeah, second rate. But really that's the common word. And, and again, our constitution really says it well that there may be different roles, and we have a full-time pastor who does maybe more of the work, more of the teaching and preaching, more leading than the other elders do. But And when Tommy was even coming to us, he, he expressed he didn't want a church where there's this bifurcation of the super pastor and then the elders down here. He wanted a plurality that has equal authority, which which is more the biblical way. Maybe some folks have almost turned the pastor into an apostle. I think that happens as well. So hope that answers a few questions. And some issues of, a, of how the church works, ecclesiology, are, are difficult to figure out. And that's why there's many denominations and views and Presbyterian, Episcopalians, Congregationalists, Baptists, and so forth. Open a big can of worms there. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Sure, and maybe to help. The, also, yeah. There are all sorts of different ways. I think the main message here is the main the main point would be there's one leading office in the New Testament church, and it has three words that describe it, but there's one office. And so whatever we're going to call that person, pastor, elder, bishop, there's one leading office and one serving office. So there are different names used, and churches have done all sorts of things, and those are ordained, those can preach, those can't, those are licensed, those are not. There's all sorts of things that people have done. In some churches, the deacons act as elders, and there's all sorts of uh, flavors of what people have done, but... These words that describe the leading office are used interchangeably for one office of elder primarily labeled and translated as elder, but also pastor and bishop. But it's one office leading. Tom, did you want to add something? Sorry. Not any church that's 
And there, there's been churches even in our own town here, not Stillicum, but the Puget Sound, that have elders, but none of them teach. And, and an elder must be apt to teach. Maybe he can't do it every week, and he's not as skilled as the full-time elder, but to have churches where the elders can't teach or preach is just not biblical. So, And that is somewhat common in, in the culture. So. Administration, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, good. Did you want to add something, John? Yes, thank you, John. That, that's a great passage to show there's one office with three different uh, descriptions of functionality. And again, I recommend our Constitution Article 5 goes through it and even lays out the verses and the description and similar to what John... Yes, brother. Yes. Good questions and comments. Yes, brother. I would think so. Uh, if he's a, if he's an Archbishop of Canterbury is Anglican, and Anglicans still believe in having their their documents that the Queen is the defender of the Church, right? I mean, that hasn't changed, at least in writing. Yeah. Theoretically. Theoretically, at least. But, but that, but that actually happens, 
you'd have to do some research. Um, I just it it galls me that when I read that that would be you know it's almost like it's in their constitution whether they practice it or not. Like delete that you know quickly because there there are true Christian Anglicans out there. Um, so get rid of that real quick. Um, It's amazing when you talk about church polity and what's happened over the centuries. Well, let's conclude with prayer. Father, thank you for the book of Acts and even these good questions. And uh, as we've expressed, Lord, we desire to uh, align ourselves with Scripture. And may you do that and continue to reform us to match what the Bible teaches and to be vigilant And Lord God, we know that it's only by your grace can we do anything. We commend ourselves to you. For Christ's sake, amen.